Well, hey, everybody, welcome to The Crossing today. Always good to see you. Let me just look in the cameras and welcome all those who are joining us as well. Crossing West Henderson, St. George, our microsites, those who are watching online. Can we just give them a big welcome? We love that you're part of The Crossing family with us. Well, it was in high school that I decided to get serious about my relationship with God. I had gone through a season in junior high where I was living in these two worlds, and I just decided it was time for me to be fully devoted to Jesus in my entire life. The only problem is I didn't fully grasp what that meant in my life. So it was my sophomore year of high school. I was in English class, and there was a girl who sat in front of me that came from a school that was known for their drugs and their partying and all that stuff. Now, we called them freaks. Now, I don't know why we called them that. This was the 80s. I, I can't defend that, so don't ask me that. That was a, a long time ago. But one day, I got really frustrated with her. And I just said, I can't stand all of you Curtis freaks. Curtis was the school that she was from. And one of my friends goes, oh, Shane, I cannot believe you just said that. It was not my finest hour. Have you ever been guilty of trying to do something for God that you forgot to love the people that God loves? I mean, that is kind of the main thing. That is what God has told us to do. I'm probably not the only one who has ever done that. You probably have your own story. Well, that girl in my class, we became good friends that year, and we would laugh about what I said to her, and it just kind of became our inside joke. But I think for all of us, we struggle with that issue, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're in part three of our series that we are calling Signs, that we are walking through the seven signs of the gospel of John. The apostle John, when he wrote his gospel, when he wrote his book, he organized them around seven miracles that Jesus performed. But he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because signs point to something. And he wants to point to something for us about Jesus. And at the end of his book, he gives us his purpose statement. He tells us the reason that he wrote this book. And he just says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, these signs are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was hoping that what happened to him would happen to you. That these signs convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God. And that he is hoping that it will convince you of that as well. So today, we are sign number three. And maybe in your Bible you have the little heading that tells you about this sign. It is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. This is sign number three, and it's found in John chapter five, if you want to follow along. Of course, I'll have all of the scriptures up here as well. But in this sign, Jesus is going to kill two birds with one stone. Through this one miracle, He's going to show his power over all false gods and false saviors. And he's going to show his power over rules-based religion. And this becomes a turning point in his ministry. Because from this point on, the religious leaders will be out 
to kill him. So we'll pick up the story in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, as you know on the map, you go south to Jerusalem, but the only way to get to Jerusalem is to go up in elevation because Jerusalem is on a hill. So whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up. It says, now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now they have actually discovered this pool right here. This is a picture that I took of the remains of this pool when I was in Israel this past time, that the water level would have been down here during Jesus' life. And what you're going to see, this is such a moving place for me. Because what you're going to see in this is that Jesus takes this place of brokenness and he makes it a place of healing. Now there is a model that um, they have put together to show what it might have looked like. And the pool of Bethesda, there was actually two pools. There was an upper pool and there was a lower pool. And John tells us it was covered by five covered colonnades. And so my best guess is, is that this was one, that this is one, and then we have these three right here making up these five covered colonnades. But here's what you need to know about this pool. Bethesda was not part of the Jewish tradition. This was not some innocent place where some superstitious stuff happened. Bethesda was a place of paganism. The pool of Bethesda was a shrine to a Greek god called Asclepius. Asclepius was the Greek god of medicine and healing. In Greek mythology, it was believed that Asclepius would bring healing. Now, if you've ever seen the medical logo where there is a, a staff and a serpent around it, or sometimes it is a staff with two serpents around it, that came from this Greek god right here. You didn't even know that. But that's where that sign came from. So Asclepius was worshipped as a kind of a healing god. Now, John goes on and he tells us this. He says, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, we don't know if this was dozens of people or if this was hundreds of people. It was believed that when someone had an illness or a disability, that they were being punished from something from their past. It was, it was this karma type of an idea. That it was either something that you had done or something that your parents had done. We'll see this again in John chapter 9 when we look at that sign here in a few weeks. Now, there were very few physicians, and only the rich had access to doctors. So if you were poor and you were sick, you were basically on your own. And there was this legend that every once in a while, an angel would show up at this pool and would stir the waters. And when the waters were stirred, that the first person in would be healed. Now, when they excavated this pool, there was actually a reservoir that always filled up this pool. But what they discovered when they excavated this pool was a natural spring at the bottom. So what would probably happen is every now and then, the spring would bubble up and cause bubbles to come to the surface. Maybe kind of like when, when you, if you have a pool, you turn on the pump, and the very first pump, it puts all of this water and disturbs the surface. That's probably what was happening with this natural spring. 
And so whenever the water was disturbed, people would start to rush towards the water because the first one in, they believed, would be healed. Now you can imagine the chaos whenever the water was disturbed. People would be scrambling to get to the water first. Maybe somebody claimed that they were healed. Because people were so sick at this place, oftentimes they would die right there at the edge of the pool. So it looked like death and it smelled like death. John goes on to say, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been there in this condition for a long time. Now this guy has been like this for 38 years. But here's what you need to realize about what is happening here. This is key to the story right here. This guy has forsaken his faith. We know that he's Jewish because later on he will go to the temple. But as a paralyzed man, he's not allowed into the temple, which is a completely different message for a completely different day. But maybe he's given up on God. And he's at the pool of Asclepius. He's at this pagan site. And Jesus does not reprimand him. Jesus goes to the very place this guy shouldn't be. And he leans down and he asks him this question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? See, this seems like a strange question, doesn't it? Do you want to get well? We're like, of course he wants to get well, right? Not everybody does. Some of you have been complaining and complaining and complaining, and you have not done what it takes to get well. Because sometimes getting well is harder than staying sick. Sometimes getting well takes more humility than actually getting help that actually staying where you are. And perhaps you are unwilling to pay the price to get well. So let me ask you, do you want to get well? Whether it's a physical ailment or a habit or an issue that's, that you've been putting off, you should really answer this question for yourself. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I was trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He calls Jesus, sir. He doesn't even know who he's talking to. But you can hear the desperation in his voice. Is that every time I try to get in, the water is stirred. Someone else beats me there. See, the solution is looking at him in the face, and he doesn't even know it. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This guy didn't even ask to be healed. Jesus just heals him. And then after he heals him, he slips away into the crowd. But by asking him to pick up his mat and walk, Jesus has smacked the hornet's nest on purpose. It says the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, this is that moment right there. See, this is a big deal because this is one of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number four of the Ten Commandments says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
So what the Pharisees did in an attempt to keep the Sabbath, they came up with all of these rules that became like this fence around the Sabbath, that they had this command right here, but they came up with all of these other rules so that you wouldn't break the command. There was 39 categories of things, not 39 things, 39 categories of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. They were called the tradition of the elders or the oral Torah. And they had the same moral authority in culture as the written Torah. One of these is that you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. It says, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Actually, it didn't. Their tradition forbid him from carrying his mat. See, healing on the Sabbath was actually allowed for an emergency or an immediate need. The law allowed for healing and treating people who were sick, but not for an ongoing condition like this guy had. He had been like this for 38 years. And so they're like, heal him tomorrow. You know, you can heal him the day after the Sabbath, but not on the Sabbath day. But Jesus doesn't just heal him. Jesus heals him and tells him to pick up his mat and walk, which was considered work. See, the healing might have been an act of compassion. The carrying of his mat clearly violated their rules. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I have been like this for 38 years. And the guy who healed me said, pick up your mat and walk. So I picked up my mat and I walked. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, there's no agreement on what this sin was. I read all kinds of commentaries this week, and nobody could agree what the sin was. So I'll just give you what my opinion is. My opinion is, is maybe Jesus said this, is because he was down there seeking after false gods instead of the one true God. This guy was Jewish. He knew better. He knew the command, you should have no other gods before me. But we're not for sure what this sin was. It says, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. God doesn't take a day off. I'm being just like God. See, he's saying, you know that God actually violates your version of the Sabbath? Because if you get in trouble, don't you pray to God, even if it's on the Sabbath? Or do you say, well, God, I, I'm going I'm to wait till tomorrow to pray to you about this emergency I'm in. He says, my father does not take a day off, and neither do I. And then John tells us this. He says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, which is interesting, because Jesus broke their tradition, and so now they're going to break one of the Ten Commandments right here. 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that is exactly what John wants us to know. That these signs point to the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And that's what you have to decide. Who is Jesus? See, that's what you have to decide in your own heart. Who is Jesus? There are two equally lost groups of people in this story. There's the irreligious and the religious. There are those who have left the faith and those who abuse the faith. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told is his most well-known parable? In this parable, there are actually two prodigal sons. See, you know about the, the younger son, the younger brother who runs away. He leaves the father and he goes and he lives his life in this wild living until he finally comes to his senses and he comes back to the father. But there's also a second son. It's the older brother. And he thought that he deserved his place with the Father. And Jesus tells this parable because both groups are in the audience. There's the tax collectors and the sinners, those who are on the outside. But there was also in the audience when Jesus tells this parable. It was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the insiders who could not believe that Jesus accepted these sinners. And so Jesus tells this parable for both groups of people. That's the idea of this sign right here. That is why this sign is so significant. This is not just a random act of kindness. See, if this was, if this was a random act of kindness, Jesus could have waved his arms and healed every single person at that pool. But Jesus chooses this guy, perhaps because he is Jewish and he had walked away from God. He chooses this place because it represented the work of Satan. And he chooses this day because it's the Sabbath and the religious rules have become more important than people. See, this wasn't just about compassion. This was about his power and authority as the Son of God over the works of Satan and over works-based religion. And in one miracle, he conquers both. See, what we see first is Jesus' power over false gods. Idolatry. Idolatry was the number one sin of the children of Israel. From the time the children of Israel left Egypt to wandering in the desert for 40 years and then entering the promised land, idolatry was the number one sin. That they were always going to false gods and idols and worshiping them. Two of the Ten Commandments actually deal with idolatry. First is you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second one is you shall not make an idol of any form. And instead of worshiping God alone, they worship God and something else. They would put their hope in God and a substitute for God just in case, just to hedge their bets. And Jesus shows his power over every other God substitute. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. That Jesus shows his power over every other false God who's out there. And he shows his power over rules-based religion. See, all the rules that, that they had around the Sabbath came with the best intentions. 
See, we view the Pharisees as the bad guys of the Bible, and they were. But it came, all of these rules came with good intentions. See, the rabbis believed that one of the reasons the Messiah had not yet come is because the people of Israel were not showing proper respect for the Scriptures. So the religious leaders had this belief and they had this teaching that if all of Israel could keep the Torah for just one day, then the Messiah would come on that day. So every time Jesus heals on the Sabbath, they're like, oh, we have to reset the clock again. Jesus, you've messed up everything for us. Jesus had said that man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. It's not like God had all of these rules and thought, I have these great laws. I need to create some people to keep these laws. It was the other way around. That he created people. And then he created the law to protect his people. The religious leaders were so focused on keeping the rules so that the Messiah would come that they actually missed that the Messiah had come. They missed the point. And I wonder if we don't sometimes as well. So let me get personal. Let me just get real personal. Let me just kind of push on you a little bit. Because maybe you identify with one of the groups of people. Maybe you identify with this guy, with this guy who kind of left the faith. Or maybe you identify with the religious. Maybe you've been going to church for years and you identify more with him. So let me just ask a couple questions. Here's question number one. Do you ever find yourself seeking to meet your needs outside of God? Is that ever you? Do you ever find yourself hanging out at the pool of Asclepius? It's not that you've completely given up on God, but you chase other things because you've convinced yourself that those things will make you happy. So you chase after money, you chase after relationships, and you begin to tell yourself a story. Well, if I can, if I can just kind of get this money over here, I, I know it's not what God would desire for me to do it like this, but I just need to kind of get on my feet and, and then everything will be okay. Or you go from bed to bed to bed trying to find something, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find happiness in a relationship, and it has become God plus. You say, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to still hold on to God, but I don't completely trust God to meet all my needs. So I'm going to go after these other things as well. Notice Jesus does not reprimand this guy. He does not say, what are you doing here? You know better than this. Jesus just asked him, do you want to get well? You cannot change what you are willing to tolerate in your life. You cannot change what you are willing to tolerate. If you are hedging your bets, then you are going to miss out on both. If you're not a follower of Jesus. Jesus does not stand over you in condemnation. Maybe some of you had that view. Maybe some of you still have that view right now. He does not stand over you in condemnation. He is ready to make you well. But it can't be Jesus plus something else. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's the second question. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people God loves? 
Now, when I originally wrote this, I put, does your version of religion get in the way? Because a lot of us have come from a background of, of a religion that has got in the way, but I thought that really kind of let us off the hook because we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that used to be me. So my question is, does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people God loves? Because so many times we, we have a version of religion that's more concerned with our made-up rules rather than loving the people that God has called us to love. For the Jewish people, the Sabbath was meant to take a break from labor, not to take a break from love. It meant that you were supposed to take a break from your occupation, not from compassion. And for us, this is what happens when defending a theological system, an ideology, or a political agenda takes precedence over the people those things claim to serve. Anytime that your theological system, ideology, or political agenda takes precedence over people these things claim to serve, we commit the same sin. When we embrace our opinions over people, then we've missed the point. And this is so difficult to see in ourselves. You want to know how I know that? Is that everybody in here agrees with what I just said, but you think it applies to someone else. You think, yeah, tell them. You need to tell those people, those Republicans, those Democrats. You just need to tell them. When religion is in first place, leaders become self-righteous because they make the rules and they make sure that they are above the rules. And then followers become hypocrites because no one can live up to those standards. And so in your attempt to try to live up to those standards so that everybody thinks that you are, you become inauthentic. And Jesus wants to come in and he wants to free you from both. I love what Max Lucado writes. Max Lucado says, as long as Jesus is one of many options, he is no option. As long as you can carry your burdens alone, you don't need a burden bearer. As long as your situation brings you no grief, you will receive no comfort. And as long as you can take him or leave him, you might as well leave him because he won't be taken half-heartedly. But when you mourn, when you get to the point of sorrow for your sins, when you admit that you have no other option but to cast your cares on him, and when there is truly no other name that you can call, then you cast your cares on him for he is waiting in the midst of the storm. Let me explain why we do what we do around here. Maybe you've come here for a long time and you don't really understand. But it's what I pray about all week long. It's what I think about when I'm preparing messages. And I want you just to lean in here for a minute. I want you to hear me in this. That we're not trying to create a liturgy. We're not trying to create three songs, a greeting, a message, and communion. That we're trying to create moments. That our church service is designed to create a catalytic moment. 
A church service can't change you, but a church service can make you want to change. And the Word of God, it becomes this mirror for us, and we examine ourselves so that we can be transformed into the image of God and become more like Jesus. And so that's why we teach the Bible the way we do, is we just believe the Bible becomes this mirror that begins to reflect what we need to change, how we become more like Jesus, how we begin to think like Jesus, how we begin to respond to people like Jesus would respond. That God wants to change you. And no matter where you find yourself today, whether it has been this God plus mentality or being so steeped in religion or church that you've forgotten the people that God loves. Jesus has the answer for both. He says, follow me. And so I want to pray with you. And here's what I want you to pray for. Maybe it's just identifying where you might be and just making that confession to God, saying, God, it is true, it has been you plus something else, and I'm going to lay that down today. Or maybe it's been, I've been doing this for so long, I forgot. Jesus is about people, and I want to love people again. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for preserving it for us. God, and the truth is, there are so many times in our life where we're this guy It's Jesus plus something else. So God, we declare it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And there's others of us who have been doing this for so long. We've been coming to church for so many years. We've been reading the Bible for for so many years that we've forgotten the words of Jesus that would say that this world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. So God, help us to love like Jesus loved. God, do a work in us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.